All right, we're going to start out with Lewis and then Clint. And no, Don's getting me those other names right now. But uh, Lewis is up first. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Two questions for you this morning. All right. It's about um, organic fertilizers. I've always been using organic fertilizers in my garden. Uh Uh-huh. I'm looking at renovating the past, and I talked to you a little bit in the past about it, and I actually found an organic fertilizer that sells it on a commercial level about 45 miles from me. Okay. And what my question is, is what would you look for? This is a reputable outfit. They've been in business for about 20 years, and it's actually a next to an egg farm, so they have access to chicken <laughs> feathers and, and chicken manure and that. And, but they sell bulk. I mean, they sell the 2,000-pound totes. Yeah. And they inoculate it with the mics, mycorrhizals and then with the bacillus and the trichodermas, and they sell it to mainly vegetable production, you know, the commercial guys. I don't think they sell it retail. They do bag it. What would you look for to make sure this is the, the kind of product that you would use? Well, um, I would just, you know, find out um, what they are uh, using as a base. If they are using poultry litter, that's a real good start because uh, you're probably going to get, you know, perhaps a little bit of antibiotic, a little bit of hormones, things that may be in the chicken feed. But those things are broken down quickly by microbes in the soil. Organic products that are based on larger animal manures, like cow manure and horse manure, those you run a bit of a risk of, uh, you know, of picloram contamination, which is very long-lasting herbicide. But uh, nothing that goes into chicken feed is likely to have been sprayed with that. So, I gosh, I I just would, you know, run through um, if they are ser- selling it as a fertilizer then that has to be analyzed, has to have a, a certified analysis to satisfy, satisfy the state requirements. I'd just simply be looking through their ingredient list, and um, and as long as they are not, you know, adding anything that would be toxic, which I doubt, I can't see any reason they would be. It sounds to me like you've got a great product, and if buying it in bulk, if the price is right on it, uh, um, just, you know, go for it. I, uh, is it pelletized? Is it something you can put out with a, uh, hopper type spreader? Yeah, exactly. Cause it's, that's what their, that's their primary market is. Yeah. Organic vegetable gardens and golf courses. You know, when you look at their rates and, and actually some of the containerized nursery, I was looking at their sheets. It is made out of poultry manure and uh-huh. obviously being the, coming off an egg farm, chicken farm. Sure. And it's got 5% humate added and of course they inoculate it. Yeah. And they're recommending on this stuff to put out 19 pounds for 1,000 square feet, which is almost half a ton an acre. Yeah. It's about 800 pounds to an acre, which puts about 33 pounds of nitrogen an acre. I'm looking at their 422 products. You can get all different formulations on right, it. But they right. do sell the 2,000-pound totes, which I've got the hopper spreader and two tractors. You've got to have one to lift it and one to fill it. Yeah. So, I, I it, didn't know what you would look for when you're considering this. Have you heard any bad experiences, you know, or good experiences in the past? Uh, you know, there's. For me. I I can't imagine <clears throat> that there would be anything bad putting it out like that. Now, some of these products, if they're a little hot when they pelletize them, um, you know, if you overdo it, but, uh, putting it out, you're, you're putting out roughly 20 pounds per thousand square feet. So, uh, there's no way you're going to burn anything with that because of the nature of the nitrogen that's in there. Uh, you can put it out wet or dry. 
Um, I if I, I think it sounds like a great way to start building, you know, rebuilding the soil on your land. So I I see no negatives whatsoever in that. Uh, uh, you know, and doesn't have to be watered in. It's just it's a win win win. It's just so uh, you know so easy with the organics because because you can use them. You don't have to water them in. Uh, it sounds like they're adding all the right things in the form of mycorrhizae. Now, if we want to get technical we can say hey do they do both endo and ecto mycorrhizae are they putting bacillus subtilis and some of these things that are natural fungicides but the the bottom line is once your soil's healthy you know you just don't have to be doing a whole lot to it and i suspect that you'll find that uh, if you start out using it four times a year after a year or two you'll cut back to using it no more than once or twice a year a year and still have the same good results so uh uh, you've, you're fortunate you've, you know, found somebody in close proximity and you've got the equipment to spread it. So I see no negatives whatsoever there, Lewis. Okay. Well, I just want to talk up a ton of the spring, looking for insights. Uh-huh. I'm going to shift gears with you. I'm going to ask you about humates. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about acidifying soil. Right. You had recommended humates. So out came the research and there's actually a company um, in Houston, Microlife, you've heard of Microlife Fertilizers, I think some other callers have talked about it. Microlife actually bags and sells emates, and uh-huh. the local distributor happened to have 30 bags of it on the shelf. And so I've got some. Have you ever tried the concentrated traded humates and actually used it in a bag form to acidify? You, well, it's... It, Not the, acidify, but the amend. Yeah, the, the, the acidifying is a secondary effect. But humates are basically, they're, um, I guess we could say they are compost that hasn't quite turned into coal. Uh, humates are basically a very low-grade coal, which means you've got a lot of carbon, you've got a lot of hydrogen, you've got a little bit of oxygen in there. You're beyond the state where you're going to have any live microbes in there, but you've got all that energy. Most of the energy in the world is tied up in the form of carbon bonds. And so that's, you know, that's what we're looking for to rebuild the carbon in the soil. Do you by any chance subscribe to the magazine Acres, A-C-R-E-S? There's there's an article Yeah, there, there's an article in there on rebuilding carbon in the soil and uh I haven't had time to study it. I read uh, I I subscribe and they also send me an online version and um that's that is something that as the article points out that is so often overlooked and dry humates are one of the most economical ways to get a fair amount of carbon in the soil the other thing that the way that you build carbon long term is through microbial action primarily bacteria in the soil and anything that stimulates the bacteria like any sugary product or you know a lot of things uh, that you're going to have in your poultry litter based fertilizer these are all things that are going to build your soil and make it better and better and better over time dry humates or liquid humates either one are great for adding carbon and adding, um, you know, some energy to the soil in that fashion. So if you're buying it at a reasonable price, uh, you know, by all means, go for it. Uh, there are a lot of companies out there that package it, including, I believe, even Medina has a dry humate product. Uh, and and I've just, I just don't think any of them uh, really have negatives. Some of them may have some other things added to them, but uh, humates are, are a great way to 
build your soil a little more quickly. As long as you're staying with organic fertilizers and all, there's nothing that says you have to. You're going to be building your soil. You're going to be bringing it back into good condition, but it's going to take time to do it. Humates will just speed up the process uh, in a natural fashion with uh, with no negatives. Okay, well, that's, that's good insight. Like I said, I'm going to try it this year. I've got five bags, and yeah. I've got a 10 by 20 bed I'm trying to well now you're not going to have to use a 10 10 by 20 bed you put uh you put 20 pounds of humate in a bed that size that's probably all you're going to need to use it's not going to take a huge amount and i've got some other beds that i'm putting in so just just be sure that you leave a couple of beds without it and mark which is which so that you can see if you're getting added value, so to speak. You can see if it's making a difference. My problem in my garden is I've gardened organically for so many years and used so many good products in it over the years mm-hmm. that uh, that I can, if I add one thing to any one of my beds, I generally see very little change because, again, the soil's balanced and everything that needs to be in there is in there. But if I go over on some poorer soil outside the garden, then I can really see the difference of when I'm experimenting with adding a new green sand or adding a new humate or trying out a new fertilizer. So just, uh, again, keep records, uh, look at where you're putting it. And um, humate, that's another one of those things that if you're putting it on soil that's already in really great shape, you're not going to see much change at all. You're you know, that's that's kind of like saying, uh, "Well, I'm I'm I've already eaten all the prime rib I can eat. Should I have some shrimp as well?" No, you're just pouring in more things that you really don't need. Uh, but on soil that is in need of help, dry humates is one of the quick and relatively low cost ways of building that soil up. It, it, uh, that's what I'm going to try based on some Bob Webster insights. So. Well, but but okay. also yeah, like, keep keep those records. I want to I want to hear the results. Okay, well, I appreciate the insights. I'm going to, I'm going to try a couple of times of this uh, poultry-based stuff just to see in comparison to the rest of the place and see how it does against the stuff I've been using. I'll sure look forward to hearing hearing how it does for you, Lewis. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure. And you get out and have a great second day of February. All right, back to garden, gardening. It's going to be Priscilla and Shirley and Jeff. Priscilla's up first. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Castroville, and I have a question because we have a lot of poppies here that are already blooming. Mm-hmm. How do pre-emergence for weeds, which I've never used, I'm not a fan, I don't think of them, I'll pull weeds, but it's kind of gotten out of control on a vacant lot. How do they have an effect on wildflower reseeding? Well, here's the thing about pre-emergence. Uh, they do not kill seeds. That's probably the biggest misconception out there, that a pre-emergent kills seeds. They don't. What they do is, as a seed sprouts and begins to grow, they keep it from forming a root system. And so pre-emergence, uh, if they are put out after the weeds sprout, they have no effect whatsoever, and most of our spring weeds are already up and growing, uh, little winter grasses, the dandelions, the henbits, things like that. But as far as preventing, you know, or, or killing things, in effect, by, by keeping them from developing roots, pre-emergence will damage your wildflowers just like they damage every other seed out there. Now, 
the reason that they are not always effective is because pre-emergence are broken down and some seeds can germinate over a long period of time sticker burrs for instance they can gen they can germinate and grow over about a six-month period so you'd have to put your your pre-emergent out four or five times to uh get any effect and that i i just am not a fan of pre-emergence and if you've had the weeds just add out of control on a lot like that I think you'd be a whole lot better off and probably a whole lot cheaper off paying somebody to just uh, mow it regularly. I really think the pre-emergence would be damaging to your wildflowers and wouldn't accomplish uh, what you're trying to do as far as weed control. So that's that's sort of pre-emergent 101. That's how they work. There are natural pre-emergence and then, of course, a lot of synthetic pre-emergence. But none of them actually kill the seed. They kill the young plant as it germinates and starts to grow. So I'm only concerned with poppies. So and it gets mowed very regularly. Mm-hmm. Once poppies have bloomed, I let them completely reseed. Plants are brown. That's when I get rid of them. Right. I'm not a fan of pre-emergence either. But I've I've tried the low mowing for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and I know this this is bad this year because we got rain right. for poppies. Right. Because we are already blooming, and they shouldn't be blooming yet. But, um, okay, so I guess I'll just keep trying. But the clover is what is just uh, clover and sticky weed, Velcro reed, whatever it is. Yeah, they call it bed straw is another name for it. The clover is not a problem. The clover is telling you that your soil is hard-packed, and clover is actually helping to loosen the soil, plus clover is a legume, which means it's actually putting fertilizer back in the soil. Now, it may, we've been just told that clover's a weed, and we've been told that we shouldn't like the clover, but it is actually helping you uh, to soften the soil and to put some more nutrient back in the soil. So clover's just not the weed that many people make it out to be. When I think of noxious things, I think of things like sticker burrs. There's some of them that just get invasive in the vegetable garden, like henbit and some of those other things. But clover's not really something I would worry too much about. That Velcro weed, um, the nice thing about it is it only you know, grows for a very short period of time. If I were fighting it, uh, it's probably, is it already germinated and started to grow? Are you already seen it growing? Yeah, and I fight that in the poppies. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I've, I've tried to keep it mowed and weeded it down this year to where it's it's not quite as bad, but it's really, really bad. Henbit doesn't bother me. It's so weak. It's yeah. gone so fast that... I don't worry about the hen bit. I just knock the tops of it off when I'm weed eating. Sure. But I can get rid of what shows in the purple, yeah. and the poppies can still get through. Yeah, and, and the problem the hen bit's making 10 million more seeds by the time you get rid of it. The, the Velcro weed, um, if you have areas where you're seeing that, that you don't have your poppies up, I mean, you can knock it out so quickly with that vinegar and orange oil mix, but you've got to keep it off the poppies. When I'm out spraying with it, I'm carrying a big piece of cardboard in one hand, 
and uh, let's say that I've you know I've got a bunch of Velcro weed and I've got a bunch of poppies next to them, I can just put that cardboard down and then spray where I'm only getting the vinegar and orange oil on the Velcro weed because it doesn't go through the soil. It only goes through the leaves, and as long as I'm not getting the spray on the poppies, it's not going to hurt them at all. And if you have areas of any size you know, where you don't have anything that you want to save coming up, man, just hit it with that because it leaves no residue in the soil. It kills very, very quickly, especially on a soft leaf plant like that Velcro weed. And uh, that's what I'd be using to go after uh, any place that you can't pull it. Okay, it's kind of hard not to hit a poppy. But I know, but that's what I carry, that big piece of cardboard or piece of plastic or whatever that you can just put between the poppy and what you're spraying. And uh, it's really not that much effort. I'm, you know, I've got the wand on the sprayer in one hand and the uh, my protective shield in the other, and I can spray right up next to things that I don't want to hurt very successfully. Okay, well, I'll try, but like I say, I, when I look out at the lot, I see nothing right now but poppies. So that's beyond spring this year <laughs> well i then you've got something pretty to look at and uh i'd concentrate on that and not worry about the other sometimes mary margaret who's got me started and sometimes i bless her and sometimes i say oh why did you-? <laughs> i just wish that they didn't all come back red occasionally you get those beautiful salmon colored ones occasionally even a white but 99 percent of the ones of at least in mine the ones come back from cedar almost all red and i just like a little variety but uh was I I save the white ones or the light pink ones and i put them someplace where i think Okay, there's no red ones here right now, but then they come up red. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to growing poppies. Okay, that's exactly right. <laughs> Priscilla, it's good to talk to you, and thanks for bringing back uh, oh memories of uh, seeing Ellis Mary Margaret. Uh, got a Christmas card from Mary Margaret this year, so glad she's still with us and doing well. But those sure, sure were great folks with their nursery over in Casterville for lots of years. She doesn't get out as much, but we do see her every now and then around town. Give her a hug for me when you see her. I sure will. Thank you, Priscilla. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Shirley's up next. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have an avocado tree, and it's about three feet tall in a in a pot. Okay. Now, in, on the top of it now, it looks like it's got some kind of a blooms or something coming out. There are little bumps on the, on the very top. Is that the avocados? You would see flowers before you see the avocados. They're not showy flowers, but uh, it could easily be the buds coming out. It's a little bit early for avocados to be blooming. Uh, Ours seems like it's normally about March when they begin to bloom. So I suspect you're starting to see buds, but it'd be awful early to have avocados set. And if if you look at those plants carefully, you would have seen the flowers before you start seeing the fruit set. Oh, okay. They do have flowers. And it, it it's in a pot. Now, should I plant that in the ground? That's up to you. Do you know what variety it is? Is it one of the Mexican varieties, or is this uh, one of the ones? I think it's that, a Mexican avocado. Okay. They are, they are the only avocado that we can consistently grow in the ground because they do become cold-hardy. But the first year or sometimes two years they're in the ground, 
they aren't very cold hardy and you have to cover them if we get much cold they they start out with real smooth bark and as long as they have smooth bark they can be damaged by freezing weather once that bark starts getting rougher once it starts looking more like an oak tree than uh you know a smooth bark then they're going to take most any winter we ever have so they're definitely easier to maintain in the ground but um that that first year i'm just not going to tell you they're going to be totally cold hardy so you might have to cover them but uh if it was me yeah i definitely plant them in the ground just because um, they're you don't have to you yeah don't have to water as often and just regular feed them with medina or something like that be perfect how how often in once a month maybe if you're using the liquid i'd be using it once a month if you're using the dry granules i'd be doing about four times a year Okay, good enough. It does have a smooth bark at this point. Yeah, it so, doesn't. but it, wait till after we're past the danger of a hard freeze, whenever that is, probably certainly by mid to late March, you'll probably be safe, but watch the weather. Go ahead and plant it out, and then uh, you've got a whole year for it to grow and develop and start making that woodier bark before we have to worry about cold again. Okay, then uh, one other thing. You have a Connecticut. So yes. do I. I have my, we have our second one. The other one was so old, the guy said it's the oldest one he's ever seen. <laughs> but, but anyway, when he came, he said, when we were having trouble, you know, we've had over the many, many years, we've had to have them come on, fix something. The, la- the last time they fixed it before we had to get rid of it, he said that the salt, the regular salt, uh, we needed to use that instead of potassium salt. Now, you use potassium salt, don't you? Well, I alternate. I've had some problem with the potassium salt bridging. It just doesn't dissolve as well. So I I alternate back and forth. I wish I didn't have to do that, but uh, um, the, the potassium salt, I have had a little bit of problem with the bridging, and so I'll run a couple of bags of the sodium salt through it and then go back to potassium. Oh, so you alternate. Okay. Because, you know, I want to put that water on the in the plants, but yeah. if, it, if you're not using potassium salt, you shouldn't do that, should you? Well, a little bit's not going to hurt. You shouldn't be doing it all the time, but uh, a little bit, uh, just doing it every now and then is not going to be a big problem. Okay. Okay. That's what I wanted to know. Okay. Well, goodness sakes, it's, we got a little bit of rain again last night, so... Uh, uh, <laughs> we'll take every drop i got four one hundredths so wasn't a whole lot but i'm happy for every drop that falls isn't that the truth now my my um orange and lemon tree i i'm going to cut some of the lower branches so they're up higher mm-hmm. is that okay sure yeah you're you're always uh reducing your fruit a little bit but uh that's the only disadvantage you you probably have bigger fruit but just every time you cut on them you're taking off wood that could potentially be bearing fruit and a citrus bush is always more productive than a citrus tree but uh the commercial growers always do trees just because they're easier to pick but uh you're just doing it for cosmetic reasons and long as you leave that graph point exposed so that you can be sure you can always cut off anything that comes out below that point then you prune it however you like pruning it Shirley okay I'm going to do that because I, I had so many lemons still have so many I've been giving lemons away forever <laughs> anyway that's a nice you, problem to have <laughs> it is thank you you're have sure welcome week. you do the same and thank you uh-huh. bye, bye. all right let's get back to gardening here it's going to be Jeff and Mike and Tom and Jeff's up first good morning Jeff 
Hey, good morning. How are you today? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. good. Hey, the reason I'm calling is, is I live out in Lacoste, and I've got about an eight or a nine acre hay field that I grow coastal hay in. Okay. What do you recommend, and how often do you recommend fertilizing that, or new, giving it nutrients, or whatever you want to call it, uh, to to make sure I'm getting the full yield every year? Well. The, you know, coastal is a Bermuda. Bermuda loves to be fed. So if you can, you know, fertilize it, um, that is going to be absolutely the best. I would alternate your fertilizing with uh, spraying it with molasses. If you get a good agricultural molasses and use that as a foliar spray, it's a little early. I probably would start out just about the time your your coast is starting to green up in the spring. I have a lot of people that have told me that uh, they have really cut back on their other fertilizing programs using the molasses spray. So that's certainly your most economical. Now, if you can uh, if you can afford the fertilizer, and if you used to fertilize them with chemical fertilizers, your good organics these days are just as cheap as the synthetic fertilizers. They are much longer lasting, and they'll give you much higher quality hay. Um, there, there are several people that sell a good organic fertilizer. Medina offers theirs in bulk. Uh, the only problem is, you know, you've got to have a trailer and go over and pick it up, usually in uh, either 1,000 or 2,000-pound totes. Uh, Fred Morales uh, with uh, Morales Feed, and they've got three locations. Fred will actually deliver the fertilizer to you in a spreader. So all you have to do is hook up, you know, your equipment to it and uh, spread it and then take the empty hopper back to him. So that's really convenient, uh, you know, as far as having it come to you, as far as not having uh, to, you know, to have uh, any expensive equipment for putting it out. So that's those are a couple of options on the fertilizers, but there's several places now that are offering. I had a caller this morning. We didn't actually talk about the brand name where he was getting it, but he had uh, a chicken, an egg farm actually close to him, and these folks were actually producing a good poultry litter-based fertilizer, um, which, of course, you know, lack of transportation makes it good and economical. But just if you can get, if you can afford to put out a good organic fertilizer, Normally, poultry litter based is going to be your less expensive. Uh, that's what's going to build your soil. That's going to you're going to get to the point that you can skip a fertilizing, uh, even skip a year, and still get good production from it. Okay, so you recommend then it, when I fertilize, do it twice a year. If you can afford to do it, it would even be better to do it four times the first year. But uh, twice a year is going to give you good production. And like all the other organic things, um, it's just the soil gets better and better year after year. And you can use less and less fertilizer on it and still produce the same good crop. Now, there are other things you can add. Adding, uh, you know, a a little bit of lava sand, just a ton or two per acre, is always going to be a big help. 
Um, there, there are other things, but as far as basic nutrition, uh, any good organic based, especially poultry litter based fertilizer is going to be really good for you. You might, um, it's, you know, coastal, of course, being a perennial, hey, you don't have the opportunity to grow a wintertime cover crop the way you do grow in Sudan or one of the annual hays. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think just good organic fertilizer is probably going to be the best way to go and then start alternating that with molasses now they you can buy dry molasses it's more expensive it's a little bit easier to spread but if you have a boom sprayer or any kind of sprayer you're used to putting out liquids uh liquid molasses at the rate of about five gallons per acre uh, a lot of coastal growers are finding that's um, as good as fertilizer once you fed it two or three times Oh, okay, because I have seen where Medina had that hay mix or whatever. Where I think they had a mix of molasses and nitrogen and some other stuff in there. And I used that once, but I need to start doing it on a consistent basis. So mm-hmm. you, you would suggest uh, doing molasses by itself? I, w- I would alternate. Starting out, I would alternate the molasses with the dry fertilizer and um, I, the molasses is just so much less expensive, and a lot of coastal growers are uh, are finding that it does a real good job for them. You're putting out five gallons per acre, so you're it's costing you almost nothing uh, for that product. Of course, there's always the labor of getting it out, and if you're like me, you're doing it yourself. <laughs> And we're the yeah. lowest paid employees yeah. around, but uh, um, yeah, the the price of putting out dry fertilizer holds a lot of people back. But your good organics these days are cheaper, uh, or as cheap as the synthetic chemicals, and do a much better job and are much better for your land. But if you're really starting out on a budget, uh, molasses or alternating with molasses is sure a good way to go. Okay, can I ask you one last question? Of course. And the rest and the rest of my little farm out there, I raise horses. And what I've been doing over the years is just I've got like a little homemade drag where I go and drag and, you know, clear, break down the manure or, or spread the manure out. It really doesn't break it down. Sure. Do you think it justifies to pick that stuff up and buy like a manure shredder and then shredding it <laughs> over the, the pasture versus just spreading it? No, sir, I don't think it's worth it. And what you're going to find as you get your soil healthier and as you get away from, you know, the toxic things, um, you'll get to the point that you hardly ever see any manure on the surface of the ground because you'll get a population of these little critters that <laughs> I guess it's a pretty bad job to have, but not for them. But you get your dung beetles started, and they will break those piles of manure down and actually bury them. And uh, they do this because they, if you've ever watched them work, they get into a pile of manure and they literally make it into little balls. They roll it around, they dig a hole, they bury it, lay an egg in there. That's how their larvae get started. And once you get your soil healthy, you're going to not see much manure around. But I think what you're doing with the drag is all you ever need to do. You just need to be sure that, uh, and, and you're feeding your horses your own hay that you're growing yourself. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, then we don't have to worry about herbicide contamination. No, I just, uh, I just, I just spread that manure around as best you can. Where you spray the molasses, it's going to break down that manure very quickly. And like I say, you get your dung beetle populations up pretty soon. You just won't be seeing much manure in the field. I think the the most important thing about running horses is rotational grazing. Just divide that. Yes, uh, you know, be sure you can move your horses around on your property and that's going to make a big difference in uh, cutting back on feed and get more native vegetation going out there 
Okay. All righty. Well, hey, I really appreciate your information, and you have a great rest of the day, sir. You do the same, Jeff. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to talk to Mike and then Tom. Mike's up first. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, one of my uh, uh, older um, tomato plants that started popping up on their own from grinding everything up and just throwing it out there in the backyard. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Started started sprouting again this year. Okay. And uh, I dug it up and I stuck it inside one of those like big one gallon uh, pork rind oh. uh, containers. Yeah. It's clear plastic. Have a hole in the bottom. And I was one. Yes. Okay. I was wondering uh, because it's plastic and it's clear. You know, the sun will be hitting it at the roots and stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that good or bad, or doesn't make a difference? I don't know if it'll matter on tomato plants. There are no negatives to it, and there are a lot of plants that actually can develop a little bit of chlorophyll in the root system. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and it may turn out to be very right. I know. Uh, um, gosh, I you know started growing orchids back in the eighth grade as a science fair project, and learned early on that a lot of plants that normally have surface roots, it's very good to grow in clear containers. Tomatoes, I don't think, I doubt there's going to be anything really good, but there's certainly nothing bad about it. Nice thing about that container is it's free. Yeah, uh, I was just curious if you know maybe it would be like getting too hot for the roots or something. No, no, that's not likely at all. All right, I'll let you know uh, how it comes out. And it's much better than a black pot because, you know, black pots, they absorb heat, and the soil is going to be a lot warmer in a black pot. Uh, so, no, I'm I'm not at all concerned about uh, its roots getting too hot. I think it would be just fine. If anything, it may help them uh, grow a little bit faster in the spring until it really starts warming up. All right. Thank you very much. Bye. You're sure welcome. Good to talk to you. Okay, uh, it's Tom's turn. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be out of Las Vegas and back to San Antonio in the Hill Country. There you go. Listen, I'm going to plant a Mexican sycamore tree today. Okay. And I'm getting it in a five-gallon container. Excellent. Two questions. Do I need to make sure the root is not bound when I take it out of the container to put in the ground? Okay. The second question is, when I plant it, do I make sure that I plant it high enough to where the root, the the base of the tree, is at, at level like, like you talk about with showing the root flare? It's both of those things are very important in a Mexican sycamore. How tall is the tree in that five-gallon container? How big is it? How big in diameter is the trunk? How tall is the tree? I would. I have not seen it yet because okay. I'm going to the nursery. I called them yesterday to make sure they had them, and they okay. did. All right. I would imagine it's probably about an inch and a half or two inches in diameter. Oh, and, man, that's um, that's an awfully big tree in a five-gallon container. You're, you're very definitely going to have the potential for some girdling roots there. When you get ready to plant that, number one, probably do it with your hose. You may have to use a little tool of some sort, but expose the dirt right down to where that root flare is and be absolutely certain that you take uh, pruning shears. You probably just lay that tree on its side and just cut down one side you know of the root ball uh to be sure that you reduce the problem of having girdling or circling roots but uh yeah i think that's gonna that's gonna be very important both of those things you do not want girdling roots and you want to be sure the root flare is well exposed if anything plant it a little higher rather than risk having it too low thank you 
Let me tell you one more thing while I've got you there, Tom. Uh, are you in San Antonio? Are you in the CPS service area? Yes. Go to their website and look at what they call their green shade program. Are you familiar with this? Uh, I am not. Okay. Uh, Mexican sycamore is on the list. There are a group of trees um, and it includes lots of oaks and things like that, and they have to be five-gallon or larger, and you can't plant them on the north side of your home, but basically anywhere that they're going to cast a reasonable shadow, they will give you a $50 credit on your CPS energy bill, $50 per tree, up to, I think, seven trees. So uh, it doesn't cost you a penny, but you can go on, sign up for this program, and you'll basically be getting your tree free or close to it with that $50 rebate. And uh, this is good all the way up through. Usually it's about the 1st of May they cut it off. But it's called their Green Shade Program, and you'll find out all about it at uh, CPS Energy. And, uh, hey, if they want to give you 50 bucks, don't turn it down. I'll take 50 bucks, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> You're sure welcome. Thank you.